0: Welcome to the 26th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brennan Duesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about the fact that we're paid to make things work, not to build new things. Sometimes those are the same, but frequently building a new system simply means more technical debt to carry. This topic came out of a blog post, that a friend of mine shared with me earlier um, by Brave New Geek. And the blog post is, you are not paid to write code. And it's targeted mostly at software engineers and software developers who are building things. But there's a lot of holdover for operations work and systems design stuff that we, we work on. And it was enough to get us talking about the reasons we build systems, how we build systems, and the principles behind that. All right, Brendan, start us off. One of the things that we do in systems design work is we build horribly complicated systems with lots and lots of moving parts. We need you know, DNS and DHCP and other fundamental technologies, and then we need user management and group management and package delivery and application delivery and load balancing and all kinds Bare of... Bare metal other-
1: provisioning underneath
0: container provisioning, somewhere in there's some VM provisioning all on top of each other. And then Ansible to orchestrate it all and push it all through the pipeline, and then we want and to have... puppet to configure it, and Fabric to do something else, and Jenkins to build, have tests and... to run against it, and except when you're using what's the other one that uh, uh, folks like Runbook, RunDeck, RunDeck, and all of these things that people set up because hey, it's, it's a new and shiny thing, and I want to have I want to have a good continuous integration pipeline for my AMI Packer workflow. I mean that sounds really good, but every time that a new system gets stood up you've introduced a new piece of complexity to the pipeline and there's more state that the operations team and the systems teams and DevOps and SREs and everybody else has to carry at all times to understand why something is happening the way it's happening. And a lot of people really say, hey, I want to do the new shiny thing. I want to look at, I want to, hey, there's something based on Zookeeper and Finagle and Kafka and these other things that I want to play with. And that's great for playing with it. But once you put it into production, people are going to use it, and they're going to use it for much longer than you ever anticipated possible. So you have to be very selective with what you emit out into the system because otherwise everybody's carrying all of this crazy debt forever. I think Docker is such a great example of,
1: of some of these technical debt issues because um, uh, operations folks nowadays really don't want to deal with hardware or VMs um lots of people like to push things out with docker and docker's a great tool for doing so um but it comes to a point when you're running a production shop you've got to have some sort of production platform that can run your docker images and somebody's got to own and love and care for that system um and those are sometimes boring sometimes horribly complex um and sometimes just really not where the glory is if there is any in our day-to-day job. And I've seen a lot of people ignore that part of the system. Uh, so you've got these great Docker images, you've got a great app, but you can't reliably run it and de- deploy it.
2: Yeah, it's real easy to get started with Docker, but then the, like you said, the, the orchestration piece, especially in production, because, um, you know, there's this, there's some things out there like, was it Daku or whatever, Um where it's like a single box. You can you can have like a, a Heroku type functionality. But as soon as you want to scale that out to more than one box, it, it's
0: super complex. And there's also the fact that let's say Docker was a perfect tool. Let's say Docker did everything you wanted to do perfectly. And you deploy it alongside the rest of your VM infrastructure and your system provisioning infrastructure and your Amazon infrastructure. You now have another thing you have to support and maintain and think about. Even if it's a perfect tool, it's another tool that you now have to give time and attention to. And the realization that there will be that
1: old Docker image that no one's restarted, that you find a couple of years from now and find the source of all your problems.
2: And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier, Brendan, that I think a lot of these things start off innocently enough where somebody wants to play with a new language and new technology. And I think there's a time and a place for that. And And I think a lot of the times it should be like your personal time or maybe like a little pet project or whatever, but definitely shouldn't be, you know, if if you need to do something to support the business, your first thought should not be, oh, this would be a great thing to do in language X.
0: Well, it's also an example of like the reason why it took VMware a decade really to go from its first products that let people do virtualization to really owning data center virtualization technologies for enterprises because it takes a long time to build a tool set and trust in the tools and understand how they integrate with everything else that you're doing and slowly move into them. This is not something you can just jump into very quickly. So, yeah, I mean, if you want to do it as a personal project, that's great. And if you want to have an entire company move to it, that's also great. But you have to plan for it. Yeah, I mean, and, and sometimes you you got to build these systems, right? I mean, it
2: is it is fun to rag. And, and, I, and I, I did agree with a lot of the things the the blog post did say, but unfortunately, sometimes I mean, there's just no way around it. Like, I mean, if and and, and there is a difference between like a small scale setup in Google uh, in terms of like, do I need like a distributed system? But sometimes you honestly do need some form of a distributed system, whatever it is, maybe it's database, this that, what whatever. And there's going to be times where it's y- you're going to have to deploy it, and I think when it comes to that you really need to have discipline and focus and see the project all the way through. Because I think it's real easy, especially in our industry, to get to a 80 or 90% completed thing. And it, and it will run, and it will work, but maybe after you've left or moved to another team, then a lot of the corner cases start showing up. And if the the discipline wasn't there or isn't there on the team... It's going to be real difficult to see it through to, to be you know almost 100% or, or nearly reliable.
0: And I know that I've left behind things at previous organizations that were 70, 80, 90% solutions that people have probably cursed my name saying, why didn't he finish this piece of this system? Why is this, why is this stupid bug still here? And it's because a lot of these things take constant input, constant work to keep them running. And no matter how many notes you may leave when
1: you depart a position, it's really difficult for someone else to get the same level of understanding of a complex system that you built, on uh, that you had. Um, so yeah, I've seen a lot of, a lot of situations where somebody built a complex system that worked really well, uh, solved an incredible task, was well worth the time and effort, but that atrophied and decayed and was ripped away. Um, after the person had left, because no one else could understand how it, how it worked. And I and I think that's where,
2: again, like a lot of these problems, that's where an organizational buy in has to be there. And and uh, much like a lot of our other problems, it's uh, part of this is a um, management problem, a people problem. You know, this needs to be a commitment done on the at the team level, and it needs to be something you know that. Unfortunately, there is times where you have to take on a more janitorial role. Uh, you know, be it monitoring, like cleaning up old alerts. I mean, there's just stuff that has to be done there routinely. And
1: yeah, sometimes, sometimes you get to design the new uh, monitoring system or manage or configuration management system. And sometimes you're the guy that has to port each host one by one over to the new system. Exactly, and. I think it's important to not let that,
2: I don't know, maybe not demotivate you, but just be a downer because while you may be doing that and and it's sometimes tedious work, you may learn something and figure out something else while you're doing it. Because I know that sometimes when I'm doing tedious work like that, my brain's working on other things and I might actually solve something that was causing me a lot of, Heartache, or whatever, or I just discover something that I didn't know about the systems I was working on.
0: Completely agree with all of that. Another piece of this is that distributed systems are really hard to get right. They take a lot of mental state to kind of figure out and <laughs> see the Jepsen tests. Yeah, exactly the the Jepsen stuff covers this in excruciating detail and I, painful I love... detail. I love reading his writing because he talks about all of the various ways that Oh no that fails and this fails and the other thing fails and you promise this and you don't get that but there's there are times when you need a distributed system when you have thousands of hosts sending say metrics or log messages or something you need to be able to receive that and you can't have they can't go into a single source you have to then build a system that multiplexes and demuxes and do other things to get all this, this data in and then reliably distributes it and other pieces. So you have to have these these large complex systems. And the complex system isn't the bad part of what we're talking about here. It's the the rushing into a solution that you don't know is supportable, maintainable, you don't know if other people are using it, you don't know how easy it is to find a community to get bug fixes out of or to complain about security issues or whatever it is this week that you're trying to get done. You're probably not the first person to have this particular problem. I mean, if you're Google, if you're Facebook, if you're one of the really big tech companies, you may be hitting problems at scales that nobody else has ever seen before. But for the most part, these problems have been at least addressed in the, hey, that's a problem sense. So you can you can go learn from others' mistakes very quickly and go, okay, well, we can rule out these five tools because they're just not going to work for what we're trying to do. And you can diminish the field of what you're looking at and not try to set up 10 things. You set up, two things to, to test and validate. Yeah.
1: If you're um, working on a coding project and find yourself implementing a raft consistency algorithm, um, that's a good sign to take a step back and take a good deep look about what your goals are, how this works toward um, the success of your company. Uh, and is this really necessary? Because building some of those uh, uh, cluster consensus algorithms you're going to get the corner cases wrong and it's going to be years before um, you get a, most of the low-hanging fruit bugs shaken out. And I've seen that play over and over again in in systems that are designed to, to be consistent and reliable. Um, oh, InfluxDB was the one I wanted to rag on. Um, there's been lots of, of fun tales about uh data loss and cluster inconsistency with those products. Um, that you can find more on the Jepson tests. But yeah, if usually when I end up starting to design the cluster, usually I can find some simpler solutions or a simpler algorithm to do what I need to do in a more in a simpler way that I know it's going to have a lot less bugs and corner cases to work out. Yeah and I I guess
2: that's why a
1: lot of us probably
2: love open source. Is that I mean, I mean that's that's the the pitch there, right? Is that other people oh, have been able to use that code, and in exchange for showing how you've done it, other people use it and give you
1: feedback, hopefully bug fixes, and you know you're standing on the shoulders of other people. Yeah, definitely, that's so much the way to go for implementing some of these more difficult protocols. Exactly, and I I, I, mean, I think. You know why wouldn't you,
2: especially like for your whole "quote unquote" core infrastructure, and like we were mentioned earlier, DHCP, DNS. I mean, these things are just are services that have been around for for decades, and there's a lot of time and energy that's been put into a lot of these. You know, the, the obviously BIND, ISCH, DHCP, or whatever. You know, they've they've been there, they've done that. Not saying that maybe you couldn't do it a little differently, but I don't know. It's just it's tough to to compete with with a proxy boot and
1: pixie installs are important things. They may be really old school and really boring, but I guarantee you Google and Amazon have to install their bare Metal server somehow.
0: The, exactly. Um, so Cloudflare comes to mind because they built their own crazy Anycast DNS BGP magic routing super DNS server stuff. Right. But there was an article a couple of years ago about how they build their data centers and their hosts pixie boot off the network with the correct image on them, and they use the local storage only for caching content. And they're using you know, pixie booting, which is, what, 20, 30 years old now at this point? Oh, yeah. Because you don't need a magic solution for everything. They're, they're already building one crazy magic solution for DNS, so the caching layer and the other things, yeah, let, let that fall back onto something that's really easy to understand and to debug, and yet it may be a little clunky, and it may not be... The, the shiniest, newest, fastest, most functional programming language ever. But it works. I think Cloudflare serves as a really great example
1: um, because they're really pretty open about some of the stuff that they've uh, uh, created over the years and how they run, or high-level view of how they run their infrastructure. And they're in the business of of DNS, of network routing, of CDN magic, of making your website always appear up no matter what the state of the internet is or who's DOS attacking uh, which DNS provider now. Um, And so for Cloudflare to re-implement their own DNS server, uh, re-implement or or forge ahead into new waters with um, routing protocols... This is something that builds their company value, um, and is is central to their core competencies and how they make their cash. So, you bet they're going to be investing in that type of development. Um, but most of us uh, probably don't need to implement a new DHCP server or a, a new um, user management uh, uh, a name services server.
0: Open LDAP is old and creaky, but it works and a pain in the ass to manage.
2: Well, I mean, there there might be some. I mean, there's also some older ones that are that are good too. Like I'm
1: I'm uh, three eighty nine comes to mind. Uh, Hesiod is older than all of them, and I want to
0: go back to it. If you said Nis, I was going to slap you though. <laughs> no, no, Hesiod all the way, please. And there there are tools and resources that help that help us do this. that do this properly. Um, one of my favorite books that really anybody who's been in this in the operations space for more than a couple of years and is decided... of
1: Tom Limoncelli.
0: Yes. And if you know this, this is a, a path you want to go down, go get a copy of The Practice of System and Network Administration and read it. Like, read it cover to cover and then about three months later, read it again. Just go through that book and internalize a lot of its lessons because he... Not he, because there's three or four authors and I think there's a mix of genders. They go through and... go. With excruciating detail, like hiring, firing, how you do users, how you do all kinds of stuff, in a practical, straightforward. This is why you do it this way. This is the, the pragmatic way of doing a lot of these pieces, and it will save you so much pain later when somebody says, "Hey, I, I want to put our users in a, in a Redis key value store." No, no, that that no bad. <laughs> and the
1: the side stories in Tom's books and examples are hilarious and make you want to hit your head on the table because you can see what's coming, and it really is an awesome read, and a thick one, too. But yeah, uh, Tom has been through a lot of the same stuff, and and before me. Um, So if you ever have an opportunity to hear one of of Tom's uh, presentations at a conference, uh, yeah, head
0: toward it. Another thing to keep in mind is if you do need to introduce a new system, let's say you're getting rid of Nagios because it's it's old and creaky and it's busted in ways that are actually busted, and you're setting up a new thing, have a hard date to turn off the old thing if you can. Get, get management buy-in so you can say, hey, there's this new thing coming. People need to get off of the old thing. And if you if you don't have that stick that – look, it's, it's it has to go away because it costs us too much money to keep it running or it's too painful or it's too broken in other ways. People will keep using the old thing forever because people like it's using there, the thing it. It works. Know. They understand it. Um, a couple of jobs ago, I was working at a university, and there was an old, a very, very old um, CMS system that was set up for a handful of professors to put out a couple of classes online in the early '90s. I kid you not; it is still running. There's it's still pieces day. of that project that are active, serving content to to students in classrooms. At his production
1: it was one of the very first projects at this university to start bringing classwork online um, or classes online back when the internet was new and it will not die I also think the inverse of that is that you need to have a clear migration path as
2: well I mean you just can't set up the new thing and be like hey we need to move over to this and then that's,
1: that's the it. often overlooked detail it's so great to think about the new shiny and how great the new shiny is going to be and and just how wonderful the world will be when you have the new shiny but the the hard part is not building the next thing the hard part is migrating from the old busted to the new hotness it's and it's real easy for folks just to you know let the old busted uh sit out in production, not get maintained and slowly atrophy away and ignore the users of it. Um, but developing a solid migration plan that brings folks from the old system to the new system in a supportable, reliable uh, fashion, that's hard. That's where the money is.
2: So one other area that I see some some of these kind of Creeping into is we tend to like to write rappers around a lot of things, um, and and that's not saying the rappers aren't necessarily bad because I've written a lot of rappers, uh, but I've really noticed, especially in the newer position that I'm that I am in, that it's it's more open source friendly uh, than I'm than I'm used to. Really, uh, has really opened my eyes to really try and instead of writing a rap around some piece of software that you're using to to get what you want out of it actually contribute to that project and try to get that feature baked in upstream um that will help you numerous ways just because one it's it's upstream now so you don't have to keep maintaining that especially if something changes later on then you have to fix the wrapper and again if you're not there anymore or you moved on you know what's what's going to happen but who am i kidding who upgrades um (laughs) And also, again, you're you're helping out other people with this problem who are probably either doing the same thing you're doing or just have moved on to another tool.
0: I've seen wrappers that are, you know, bash scripts that, that generate Perl scripts that call into other languages and do like, oh, let's run some C utilities over here. And that's the definition of fragile.
2: Yeah, and you can really get some weird edge cases. Um, one I've seen is... Um, you know, some places I've been at, there's been wrappers around like puppet, which is not necessarily a bad thing because again, the puppet agent is a little finicky or whatever. Um, especially if you want to have puppet disabled on a host, but then you want to to do a dry run, you can't do that if you have if you use the old oh, tried and true way of dropping the the uh, the run the the file on the disk to say that it's it can't run because you can't even do dry run. But anyway, um an issue there is if you control C to terminate the wrapper script, you've terminated the wrapper script, but if it's not sending the signal up to the puppet agent run itself, then puppet agent is still running. You didn't actually stop it. And now what's worse is that it's orphaned and you can't do it. You know, then you'll have to PSL, you exit and kill it, whatever. So, you know, there's little things like that where, uh, you know, you just don't think about it at the time. And again, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, Again, if that was upstream,
0: you wouldn't even have to worry about it. The dirtiest hack that I've ever written in my entire life was trying to manage the urchin web analytics platform that Google used to sell as a standalone product. And the way it was designed, you the only way to add vhosts to it effectively was to go through the web interface, which was really horrible when we had, I want to say, it was five or 600. So I reverse engineer the database, and I built a Perl script that would munge through the the web lockers and build the V hosts in Urchin so we could have the, the Linux automatically derived for stuff. But it was ridiculously fragile and, and very, very horrible. And about three months after I finished all my work on it, Google announced they were end of lifeing Urchin entirely and basically saying everybody should move over to Google Analytics... Which was a blessing, because it meant that my horrible, broken, nasty hack that made all that work wouldn't have to change to keep up with the new version. Small blessings. Very, very small blessings.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, if I could depart with a closing thought. Um, I first really heard this in a um, in a conference talk that I found on YouTube while researching other things. And it's the concept keeps growing on me, and it's very much the same concept of the uh, uh, blog post that we mentioned earlier. But it's to remember that we as operations folks, we're not hired to write code, we're not hired to build shiny things, we're hired to build uh, the company's value, we're hired to build a shareholder's value, um, and make the company more successful. That's our true... Mission in the job we have, so that may not always entail what we would like it to entail, um, and may entail some things we wish it didn't, um. And that, the meaning of that keeps evolving in my mind as as I grow in my career and as I uh, do this podcast and study a few more, um. Uh, other folks's writings on similar topics um and that realization has has definitely steered me in different directions about how to uh do my job effectively and and cost effects efficiently yeah i mean i I almost view it as a it's, it's pretty cool because i mean
2: we're entrusted to make these well, in some some cases, I know some places people. Aren't in a good working environment, you're entrusted. <laughs> you're right to make these decisions, and I mean, it's not like you're making a life or death situation here, but it is something to weigh on. That you know, hey, this is something I need to think about. That could potentially make or break the company. At the, uh, some decisions, I mean, if you end up. You know, say you go with MongoDB, and you didn't realize, and this was early on, and you didn't make the changes to make it actually, you know, fault-tolerant and actually write data in a sane way, and your entire business was running on MongoDB, and then it it crashed, and you lost data. I mean, in some instances, that can mean, you know, and and worst comes to worst, you didn't test your backups, so you didn't actually have a backup, and, you know, now the doors are closed, I, I mean I, I, obviously that's an extreme example but I mean uh, the decisions you make have a cascading effect that could either make or break the company
0: yeah some of the decisions that we have the option to, or opportunity to make can cost everybody at the company their job it can be an end of life event for the company and then people are no longer employed so be careful especially as some companies
2: are like web only and really technology-focused. I mean, you know, if if your online store isn't taking orders, you're not making money. And if you cause an issue with
1: the web tier, it's kind of hard to make money. And a lot of it is, you know, the difference between uh, having a restrictive budget and being a really, truly successful company. Um, And what that means to me is, as as an open-source advocate, Uh, I much prefer to work in and with open source. I think there are a lot of arguments that make that a superior choice for doing the types of things we do. But there are cases when it's cheaper um, to buy a proprietary solution. There are more cases where it makes more business value to use that proprietary solution. And that's a winning argument to really investigate those proprietary solutions and see if they work um, and do what you need to do.
2: Sometimes going with the cheapest solution will cost you more in the long run than going with even the most expensive solution. Hey, are you calling open source cheap? Well, I mean, it, not even open source in that instance. I guess even, you know, like if you were looking at different products, sometimes,
1: you open know, Open source is cheap, just a cheap date. I, I understand. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked with your mentality before. Actually, I think open
2: source. You you can make argument that uh, open source software is is up there in terms of price because you have to pay uh, your employee. You know, generally, open source Linux admins command a little bit a higher price, market value wise, and uh, you know, again, and that's kind of guess where my argument's coming from is that if you're sitting there using like. I don't know, outsource labor or whatever, and they're going to just choose whatever off-the-shelf thing they can find or whatever, yeah, you're paying X dollars an hour, but at the end of the day, your solution's not going to hold up, whereas if you paid, let's even say, double the amount of money per hour for someone who is, you know, uh, well-versed in open-source software who's done this for however many years, they're going to make some different decisions and, you know, in the end, in the long run, you're just paying their salary. You're not paying for someone's salary plus this tool and that tool and this and that. And that you know,
1: so. Well, you're going to pay for the expertise one way or the other. Exactly.
0: It really is. So it, do you want to have it a good expertise? good expertise? Do you want to have it a capital, capex or opex? Do you want to have it as a capital investment spend, or do you want to have it as operational investment spend? You have to, to pick which one you want it to be. And a lot of and investors would like to see CapEx over OpEx, usually. Yeah. A lot of places with small budgets, generally, in my experience, tend to put money into OpEx. They, they, they look at the investment in people as being a, a better long term investment than the investment in, in specific tools or technologies. But there's always a balance you have to find. Yep. That wraps it up for the 26th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. Jack Neely, and I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks, and good night.